Hey everyone, welcome to The Question Show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are across my channel. If a question pops in your brain, uh, just write it down, I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. Now, I normally promote this at the end of every single show that we do, but I just wanna remind you that every week I write a very large email newsletter that breaks down all of the interesting space news that's happening this week. All the stuff we're reporting on Universe Today, plus just like every single space-related story that caught my attention. It's all there. There's cool pictures. I write every word. There's no ads. It's totally free. So if that's of interest to you, you want to stay on top of all the space news, go to universetoday.com newsletter, and then you can sign up and join the 50,000 other people that get this newsletter every week. All right. Uh, let's get into the questions. Okoro, how long into the future could life survive? Any hope to make it past 100 trillion years? There's a bunch of constraints to this question. You're asking like, how long would life survive? And I guess the answer to that question depends on life where? So life here on Earth has only got about 500 million years left. The sun is slowly heating up and over the course of the next 500 million years, the temperatures will rise to the point that all the water will boil on the surface of the planet. And so large surface life won't be able to exist on the surface of the earth anymore. Now, life could still exist to the bottom of the ocean, deep underground, but then all that water, you know, eventually the planet will warm up to the point that it's really uninhabitable, except for really, really tough bacteria hiding several kilometers down below. So we've got about 500 million to about a billion years left, which is surprisingly short when the sun isn't going to turn into a red giant for about another 5 billion years. So really, we've only got, yeah, about half a billion to a billion years left. It has nothing to do with global warming. It's just this natural heating from the sun over vast timescales. I'm sure like what you're wondering is like, how long will life survive anywhere? And for that situation, you really need a star. Red dwarfs are the longest lived stars out there. And so let's assume that all of the red dwarfs that are going to form are going to form in the next few billion years. And then they're going to live for 10 plus trillion years. And so theoretically, you could have life around a red dwarf star that would form in the next few billion years, and then it would support habitable life for say 10 trillion years. Beyond that, uh, there aren't a lot of sources for places where life could exist. Theoretically, you can have planets remain in orbit around white dwarf stars as the white dwarf slowly cools down. You could have planets orbiting around black holes for vast periods of time. Although you would probably expect I mean, there's a lot of radiation in the environment. So you'd probably need some kind of intelligent civilization that can deal with all of the hazards that are coming out of the black hole. But if they're able to feed the black hole with material, you can imagine a civilization living around a black hole for hundreds of trillions, quadrillions, quintillion years, a long, long way into the future. Really, the limit is going to be when do the black holes evaporate? And that's going to happen in about like 10 to the power of 100 years. A Google years from now, all of the large black holes will evaporate and there'll be no sources of heat, of energy left in the universe. As well, possibly all of the protons in the universe may decay. And so the very matter that life would be made out of would disappear. But that's a long time. 
uh, even a trillion years, 10 trillion years, 100 trillion years is pretty long time. But yeah, I would say reasonably naturally life will exist in the universe for another few trillion years at this point. Jeff Wilkie. Given enough time, a black hole supposedly evaporates. Once enough evaporation has taken place, will the event horizon disappear, revealing a dense ball of mass, possibly a neutron star? I guess the evaporation will stop there. You're right that black holes will evaporate over vast periods of time. And from an outsider perspective, looking at a black hole and watching as it evaporates, what they're going to see is particles emanating from the event horizon of the black hole. The vast majority of those particles are going to be photons. They're going to be light, heat, temperature. And so what that means is it gives the black hole a temperature. Right now, any black hole that we could possibly look at is going to have a temperature that's essentially the same temperature as the background temperature of the universe. But over time, as the black hole evaporates more and more, that temperature goes up. And once the black hole reaches, say, the mass of an asteroid, um, the temperature is like room temperature. And as it gets even smaller, less massive, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And eventually, the black hole gets the mass of a house. Um, it's reaching millions of degrees. It's blasting out gamma radiation. And it sort of gives off one final burst of gamma radiation. And then it disappears completely. So no, you don't end up with some remnant as the as the black hole is evaporated, it just heats up gets higher and higher temperature, and eventually it just completely disappears. Astronomers have actually proposed that this is a way that you could detect if there are smaller mass primordial black holes out there across the universe, maybe we can detect these pops of gamma radiation as these black holes disappear. Craig O'Brien. Do you think we will have more chance of detecting biosignatures or technosignatures? In the search for life across the universe, there's sort of two main classifications. Biosignatures, where astronomers are looking for some kind of evidence that life exists, some impact that life is having on its planet. So you could see various gases in the atmosphere like methane or oxygen or ozone, you could imagine there'd be certain wavelengths of light coming off of the planet, which could be due to photosynthesis plants, things like that. You could imagine if you have a powerful enough telescope, maybe you could even see forests, you could see various life caused structures on a planet. And then a subset of biosignatures is technosignatures. And that is the kinds of evidence that intelligent life might give off across the universe. So you could imagine aliens shooting a laser beam or radio signals directly at us, aliens that are polluting their atmosphere, and we can detect the chlorofluorocarbons or various pollutants in their atmosphere, maybe aliens who have vast cities and they illuminate the night side of their planet. There's been a ton of really great ideas on how we might be able to detect some technological civilization. So you're asking like, which one do I think that we're going to detect first? It's tricky. When you're searching for biosignatures, say you're pointing the James Webb Space Telescope at some Earth sized world, and you're detecting methane or phosphine or some other chemical in the atmosphere of that planet, you're saying, okay, there's life there. Well, as we learned with the discovery of phosphine in Venus or not discovery of phosphine, as we learned with the discovery of methane at Mars, the results are really inconclusive. 
And Mars and Venus are right here in the solar system with us. So if some future team of astronomers announces the discovery of vast amounts of oxygen or methane in the atmosphere of some other planet, it's going to be really hard to know definitively that they actually did find life. It's just going to be, you know, astronomers are going to argue for decades about whether or not they're going to create bigger space telescopes, and they're going to try and do follow on studies, and they're still going to try to find but they'll It'll like never be conclusive. But on the flip side, if we receive a radio signal from some intelligent civilization, it's unambiguous. There's no question. There's no way that nature can produce the kind of signal that SETI astronomers are looking for from intelligent civilizations. There's no way that a natural phenomenon could create a giant triangle shaped space station going around a star or a planet. And so it's kind of tricky. I think that there are way more tools and methods and people are going to be searching for natural biosignatures from life. And yet the results will be very inconclusive. And then on the other hand, you've got a few people who are searching for techno signatures and any one of them that you find is sort of a slam dunk that tells you, yes, not only is there life there, there's intelligent life there. So it's tricky. I, I'd be interested to see which one. If I'd like, you know, if you forced me to give you an answer, I think that we will detect biosignatures, inconclusive biosignatures first before we detect a techno signature. Larry Beckham, will Lucy make it? For those of you who are aren't aware, uh, NASA just launched its Lucy spacecraft. This is the one that's going to be visiting eight separate asteroids as it passes through Jupiter's Trojan asteroid field. It's going to fly through the asteroid belt, then up to one of Jupiter's Trojan belts and then fall back down into the inner solar system, do a flyby of Earth, get a gravitational slingshot, go back out to Jupiter's other Trojan region and take some more images of asteroids. Eight asteroids for one spacecraft, which is really good sort of cost savings. The mission launched just a couple of days ago that when I'm filming this, and unfortunately, we've learned that one of the solar panels deployed well, but the other solar panel has failed to latch. And so it hasn't clipped into its deployed position and is free hanging and, and can rock back and forth as the spacecraft makes orbital maneuvers. I don't know if they're going to be able to solve this problem. I'm assuming they will. Um, maybe they're gonna have to do some kind of quick twist to try and sort of clip the solar panel in place. But if not, they're going to have to be really careful working with the spacecraft as they turn it because you don't want to make the solar panel arm fold back in and not function. Lucy has gigantic solar panels and that's because it's designed to operate farther from the sun than really any spacecraft ever has before. It's way out in the orbit of Jupiter and even past the orbit of Jupiter farther than Juno is. And so it really needs full solar panel operation for it to survive. So um, now it's time for NASA to all the NASA engineers to come up with some clever solution to deal with what could be a crisis on the spacecraft. Fugal creations. Could red dwarf stars become less hectic with time? We've talked about this a bit in the past that red dwarf stars seem to have really powerful flares, things that are say 100,000 times more powerful than the kinds of flares that we have here with the sun. And we've seen in the past that very powerful solar flares can be very disruptive 
to our modern electronics. But if you had a flare that was thousands of times more powerful, delivered more radiation, more particles, things like that, it would actually strip the atmosphere right off of a planet. And so the thinking is, is that when red dwarf stars are fairly young, as these flares are constantly being blasted off into space, they are stripping away the atmosphere of any world, any Earth like worlds, destroying any water that they have on them, and really making them uninhabitable. Sure, a red dwarf star will settle down over the course of a few million years. And then from that point forward, is a great place to be set up around the red dwarf sort of sips at its energy for long periods of time and can live for a trillion 10 trillion years that gives life a long time to be able to set up shop and try to survive now even though you could have a planet that is warm enough around a red dwarf star it's not actually getting a lot of energy landing on the surface of it not the kind of energy that we have here on earth and so it could be argued that it's not like a great place for photosynthesis, things like that. But still, we sort of don't know what the extremes of what life could do in a world like that. Now, there's been some really interesting research that just came out. And sort of the reason I wanted to take this question is in the last week or so, astronomers announced that they detected radio signals coming from red dwarf stars. So they, they had these red dwarf stars and they noticed that as they were producing flares, they were also getting some kind of radio waves that were coming our way. And what astronomers realized is that this is the flare interacting with the magnetosphere around a planet orbiting that red dwarf star. And they found like four or five of these already. So they're literally detecting planets around red dwarf stars. They can't see the planets, but they know they're there because they're detecting how the flares are interacting with the magnetospheres of their planets. And as we know, having a magnetosphere around your planet is one of the ways that Earth protects life here. That with our magnetosphere, as the flares come off the sun, the particles are redirected by the magnetosphere to be harmless to life down on the planet. And so it could very well be that if a planet can build a very powerful magnetosphere early on, maybe it can survive, even when the star is being very disruptive. So it's quite an exciting discovery. And I love this idea that you are discovering planets because they've got a protective shield that could be supporting life. It's a pretty exciting discovery. Paul Took. Where does the energy go if the universe becomes static and scientific law says that energy can't be destroyed? Over time, as the universe expands, the amount of energy, essentially the density of energy in any one space is going to go down. So say all of the energy that was in the universe was enclosed within, say, our observable universe. And as our observable universe gets larger, right, all of the energy just stretches out into fill larger and larger spaces. So all of the energy that was ever here at the beginning of the universe is still here and it will always be here. It'll be here far into the far, far future. It's never going to be destroyed. It's just going to be stretched out. And the temperature differences, that's really the key is that, you know, when astronomers call the heat death of the universe, what they're saying is, is that there will no longer be any usable heat, no longer any differences of heat that could be extracted to do any work. And so right now we have say stars that are tens of thousands of degrees on their surface. 
And then we have space itself, which can be close to absolute zero. And it's that difference in temperature that you can do work with, you can grow plants, you can have machines, etc. But over time, as the stars cool down, as the planets cool down, as the black holes evaporate, everything will end up being roughly the same temperature. And as soon as you have those temperature similarities, there's nothing you can do to any work. And so life can't exist. Technology can't exist. Computers won't work. There'll be nothing left. And that's, that's the heat death. More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons, Don Clayton, Bill Persbisk and the rest of our 796 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Dr. Ed Elcott, cryptozoologist. James Webb will see in the infrared, will this help us detect more brown dwarfs and do brown dwarfs have similar lifespans as red dwarfs? Yes, James Webb will be able to observe brown dwarfs, but it's not the best machine for that. The real machine for detecting brown dwarfs was the WISE survey, which actually was a spacecraft that was launched like about a decade ago. And its job was to search the environment for brown dwarfs, really what its main goal. It's been put into work as sort of a secondary job now to, to search for asteroids. But originally, in fact, you know, people always ask, could there be a brown dwarf that's in orbit around the sun? And this mission wise was able to determine that there's nothing Jupiter sized, nothing Saturn sized out to probably a couple of light years of the sun. So there is not some large Jupiter object out there in the Oort cloud somewhere. We know that fairly certainly. And wise was able to turn up a whole bunch of other brown dwarfs. And so in fact, a bunch of brown dwarfs are named wise and then a bunch of numbers after that. So James Webb, if you knew where you wanted to look, you could point James Webb, this really powerful telescope and look at this brown dwarf and in the infrared spectrum, it will be able to make observations that'll be really hard for other visible light telescopes, but it's not going to be a, a finder in the same way. You need a survey, which was what wise was something like the Vera Rubin observatory, but searching in infrared as opposed to searching in invisible. So do brown dwarfs have the same kind of lifespan? I mean, brown dwarfs are already a lot cooler. Brown dwarf is going to be hotter than Jupiter, but cooler than a red dwarf. They don't have proper hydrogen fusion going on in their core. And so they will be not very detectable over just the background cold of the universe, which is why they're very tricky to detect. But what makes them pretty exciting is you could imagine having a planet that is orbiting around a brown dwarf, maybe tidally locked to the brown dwarf, in the same way that say Europa or Enceladus are tidally locked to their like Europa is tidally locked to Jupiter and Enceladus is tidally locked to Saturn. And so through those tidal interactions, the moon, in this case, the planet would remain liquid under uh, some kind of icy ocean, as you can imagine, there could be life uh, on one of these worlds. And so brown dwarfs are still very interesting places to go and look, but they they're already cool. And they're just gonna get cooler over time. Romulus XC. Hey, Fraser, are we able to detect if any wormhole opens in our solar system in the TV series and other life they detected it instantly? 
Obviously, wormholes, they're a staple of science fiction. Stargate used wormholes. Interstellar had wormholes, and I guess Another Life. I haven't watched this yet, if, if they've got wormholes. This idea that you've got some kind of, of connection in space-time between two places. And so I guess the question that you're asking is like, would we know if there was a wormhole? And in most situations, the answer would be no, no, we wouldn't be able to detect. Because imagine like if, if a wormhole is just a window to another part of the universe, then you would just be seeing say if the wormhole was was passing through your field of view, you would be seeing out the other side of the wormhole. And theoretically, you would just be seeing more universe. There was a paper that I read I think we reported on it again in the last year or so on Universe Today that you have certain situations where one end of a wormhole is, say, orbiting around a black hole. And in that situation, you probably would be able to detect it because the black hole would be distorting the light and the space time around it in sort of the same way when you look at a black hole and you see the way light and stars are distorted around the black hole. And so if you had a wormhole and then on the other end of the wormhole was a black hole, then you would see through this tunnel and see the distortions on the other side of it. But in general, no, if, if there was a, there could be a thousand wormholes here in the solar system and we wouldn't be able to spot any of them unless something really interesting was happening on the other side of it. But you can imagine situations where say, stars would appear and disappear or planets would appear and disappear. And that would be a pretty big clue. So it really all depends on what's on the other side of the wormhole. R3 Con Wu, anything interesting with the Chinese space program lately? Yeah, the Chinese have been very busy. Um, of course, they launched their space station several months ago, the first crew, the first three person crew to the space station has already come and returned back to Earth. And the second crew to the space station just flew, including a female astronaut. And they're going to be on the station for about six months. So they're going to have a much longer term mission. That's like the big accomplishments that have happened. I haven't heard any more news from their rovers. There's been a lot of been a flurry of news from the sample return mission that they brought back from the moon. They've been analyzing it and they've been handing out samples to various researchers around the world. And some of the big discoveries that have been made, they've been able to put a much more accurate date on when volcanism ended on the moon. And it seemed to have lasted a lot longer than, than anybody thought. It's surprising how much interesting material is mixed in on the lunar regolith. And they weren't expecting this. You've got bits of lava flows, you've got bits of meteorites, you've got chunks of mountains that were nearby. It's all blended together into this regular sample. And so it's been quite interesting as the researchers have been working through it. So those are the big updates from the Chinese Space Agency. I'm, you know, we're still waiting to find out when more nations are going to join on their space station. I know they have plans, they have a partnership with the with the Russians, and they're in sort of inviting other countries to send astronauts up to their station. So it could very well be that we're going to see astronauts from other countries who've never had an astronaut before flying to the Chinese space station. So we'll keep an eye on it. And when something interesting happens, I'll let you know. Zach Perry. If an ice giant melts, does it become a gas giant or something else? It's kind of a tricky question. So an ice giant, like here in the solar system, we've got the two gas giants, we've got Jupiter and Saturn, and then we've got the two ice giants, we've got Neptune and Uranus. 
But what does it mean when you say that they're made of ice? What they really are is a mixture of hydrogen, helium, and then ice, water ice, as well as other kinds of volatiles, ammonia, methane, various things that are all mixed together. And we call them ice giants because if you took a scoop of them and drop them in Antarctica, they would be very much like ice. But on these giant planets under the immense gravity, you know, they're five times the Earth's mass, um, that once you go down below the upper atmosphere, the temperatures start to warm up quite a bit. And so to define it as ice is really strange because it's like ice that is incredibly hot and under immense pressure and it acts in all these really weird ways. And so what would be liquid water or even like a solid ice under that kind of temperature and pressure behaves very differently. In some cases, it acts like crystalline. In other cases, it can act even like on Uranus and Neptune, they believe that their magnetic fields are generated by ice. And I use the term loosely here, moving or shifting around inside the planets. And it's generating a magnetic field, which is not a thing that water does here on Earth, and not the source, you know, on Jupiter, the source of its magnetic field is from hydrogen acting like a metal. And on Neptune and Uranus, it appears that their magnetic fields come from ice acting like a metal. So to say, like, how would they melt? I mean, if you could dismantle Uranus and Neptune down into small amounts, and spread them across the solar system, they would freeze into little balls. But, but under that pressure, it's ice acting strangely. Michael Booth, what do you think the challenges will be to filming a movie on the International Space Station? Well, the, the Russians just finished filming a segment on the International Space Station. A producer and an actress flew with the most recent Soyuz capsule up to the International Space Station, and they spent a week on board the station filming some scene for a movie. I, apparently, uh, there's some medical emergency on the space station, and this doctor has to go up and, and perform surgery while they're on board the station. I don't know how it went. They're back on Earth. They're safe. And they've gone back to shooting additional scenes for their movie. And, and I don't think it would have happened if it wasn't for generous support from the Russian space agency, essentially underwriting them being able to fly up to the station. Because normally that's a $20 million ticket per person, like $40 million, just so you can shoot one scene of some people on the space station. No way. So the Russians helped pay for this trip up there. What was it like? Well, I mean, in the conversations that I've had with astronauts about what life is on board the space station, a lot of your life is spent in maintenance. You're having to exercise, you're having to deal with all of the machinery, you're having to focus on keeping yourself alive. And then you've got a little bit of time left over that you can do something like, you know, some science experiments, or maybe you can watch a movie, but most of the time you're either just trying to keep yourself alive or you're doing work. And, and so I can imagine that attempting to shoot your film in space on the station would be tremendously difficult in all of the tools and techniques dealing with the lighting. When I just sort of think about what it's like to shoot video here on earth, it sucks. And so to be in space and you're drifting around and things are floating through the field of view and there's no one helping you with the continuity to remember 
what the actress's hair looked like. And she's got to put on her own makeup in the middle of the space station and deal with her hair and costume changes and special effects. It's her blood. How they deal with that and how they clean that up. Like, it just sounds like so much work. So um, I'm looking forward. I can't wait to, you know, when they've actually finished off the movie. I'd love to see it. But it sounds really, really difficult. And I would be surprised if they got a lot of usable footage, even with being up on the station for a week between the two of them. David Channon, should we be afraid of a meteorite crashing through our roof as what happened recently in British Columbia? Yeah, in, in my province, uh, some poor woman woke up to find a meteorite crashing through the roof and landing on the bed beside her. That's scary. Like it's a big rock. It's like a couple of kilograms for sure. Like if it had landed on her head, if it just landed six inches to the side, it probably would have killed her. But you're probably wondering, like, like, how could a rock that came from space have landed that gently? Like, sure, yeah, it went through the roof, but landed on the bed and didn't go through the bed and didn't go through the floor of the house and didn't create a Tunguska sized explosion where her house used to be. It seemed like a fairly gentle operation. So what happens is when these meteors strike the Earth's atmosphere, they tend to explode in the air because they get this giant shockwave that builds up in front of them and the forces cause them to tear themselves apart. And astronomers have actually noted they saw the trail of this meteorite. And so this is a real meteorite. They saw it pass through the atmosphere. They tracked its, its velocity and its direction. And so what happens then is once the meteor has passed through the highest velocity, it gets slowed down, all these chunks of rock are slowed down, then they fall at terminal velocity. And so the damage that this rock did, imagine you took a rock and you just dropped it from a thousand feet and it would accelerate and then it would reach its terminal velocity based on its surface area and the thickness of the atmosphere, it would definitely punch a hole through a roof. And yet probably wouldn't if you dropped a rock from a 1000 feet onto a bed, it probably wouldn't go through the bed, it would probably bounce off the bed. I'm I am kind of amazed at how little damage it cost. And uh, I'm glad she wasn't hurt. I heard from some astronomers that the odds of this are they're ludicrous, like one in 100 billion rocks from space are falling down all the time. And yet they're almost always completely far away from any human being. So the fact that one landed that close to a person is is astronomical. And uh, they should count themselves lucky that they were almost killed by meteorite. She gets to keep the meteorite and she actually lent it to some scientists. But when they're done with it, she gets to have it back. And it's actually special. I mean, to have a meteorite fall that quickly like to and essentially it didn't get contaminated by the ground because it landed on her bed so so it's actually a very useful it's brand new very fresh and a lot of times like when astronomers see a very bright meteor and they think they know where it landed especially if it lands in the winter time and maybe it lands on a lake then it buries itself in the ice and so it's it's very easy to go and recover and it's really been untested, gone through summers and winters and infestation by bacteria and lichen and things like that. So they're very valuable. And so astronomers are very happy to get their hands on this.
Arjun, when we see the galaxy, what class of stars are we looking at? I heard that we would be barely able to see the sun in less than 100 light years. Yeah, almost all of the stars that you see in the night sky are unusual. So when you go out and you look up and you see all those stars, they're actually not normal stars. They are all very bright, very hot stars that are either young stars that are very hot, several times the mass of the sun, or dying stars like Betelgeuse that are dozens of times the mass of the sun and they're puffed out into red giants. There's some blue super giants. Alpha Centauri, which is only say, four and a half light years away is one of the brighter stars in the sky. But once you get out to say 10 light years, 15 light years, 20 light years, stars like the sun would fade away and stop being visible just with the unaided eye. And so all that's left are the stars that are really, really bright. And we can see stars that are hundreds of light years away, thousands of light years away, but all of them are very large, hot stars and not regular stars like our sun and not dimmer stars, red dwarf stars. Like you can't even see a single red dwarf star with the unaided eye. You can't see the closest star, Proxima Centauri, without a telescope. And so we see actually a very skewed version of the night sky when we look up and see all the stars. All right, those were all the questions for this week's question show. Thank you everyone who asked questions either on the videos or join for the live show. I do this every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time on my YouTube channel. You should be able to see an upcoming event for when the next one's going to be. So if you want to join live, it's about an hour, hour and a half long. So it's much longer than what we edit down and put into the show. So if you want to do that every Monday at 5. All right, I'll see you next week. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you'll want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights, and links you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device? Go to universetoday.com slash audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks, as always, to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.